and welcome to the Region 3 Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center Anti-Racism Vodcast Series entitled The 20-Minute Talk. The Region 3 MAP Center's Anti-Racism Vodcast Series aims to advance anti-racist efforts and support anti-racist activities within school communities across and beyond the MAP Center's 13-state region within a succinct 20-minute discussion led by anti-racist practitioners. Uh, today's anti-racism uh, vodcast episode is focused on the importance of anti-racist practices uh, in educational leadership. So today we'll be talking with two leaders um, who are anti-racist leaders in their districts and in their schools about their experiences, perspectives, and recommendations for our audience. My name is Tiffany Kaiser, and I serve as the Associate Director of Engagement and Partnerships with the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center, which I'll refer to moving forward as the MAP Center. I have the privilege of serving as your host for today, and joined with me is Nikki Kumar, Doctoral Research Assistant with the MAP Center. And we're also thrilled to have two guests who are not only tremendous scholars and practitioners in educational equity work, but are also going to lead us in understanding what anti-racist practice looks like well, what it means to them and what it looks like um, in their, again, in their districts and schools. So joined with us today are Dr. Jerry Anderson, who is the principal of Homewood Flossmoor Community High School, which is located just south of Chicago, and Dr. Anthony Lewis, superintendent of Lawrence Public Schools, uh, which is located in Lawrence, Kansas. So thank you both uh, so much for joining us today. So uh, I wanted to kick us off with uh, two reflective prompts, but with the first prompt really focusing on this question of what does anti-racism mean to you? And Dr. Anderson, I, I, I wanna welcome you to kind of get us going on, on this topic and this definition. When I think about what anti-racism means, for me, it starts with embracing our own common humanity. You know, the ability to open our hearts and minds to see the possibilities, strengths, and gifts in others. Now, when it comes to embracing our own common humanity, we're really making a deliberate choice to let love live where hate could easily reside. Mm. We have to be very deliberate about how we choose to see and respond to the world around us. And in keeping our hearts and minds open, I think that can be very challenging sometimes for an administrator of color, um, but you have to be able to keep your heart and mind open in spite of the disregard and some of the harm that's caused by those who sometimes refuse to see you or those who see you and despise you because of what they see. Um, for me, I always believe there's, there's power in those who are oppressed and their allies. So anti-racism makes you understand that, that there's power, not just in the not just in those who are oppressed, but when you when they have allies, that that power is really multiplied. You have to know, especially being an anti-racist leader of color, that sometimes people will stop listening when they see you, or when they're listening to you, because what you believe doesn't necessarily fit with their view of the world. But you really can't take that personally. You can't take it personally to the extent that it stops you from continuing to pursue your journey. You have to actively cultivate and build a critical mass of anti-racists. 
And I say that to say that the work you do as an anti-racist, when you think about anti-racism, it doesn't just exist in the hands of one person. You know, it, it's something that when a critical mass is built can change the world, can change how people are viewed, can change how people are, are included. It's a decision to be courageous, resilient, while steadfastly appealing to the hearts and minds of others. That's what's going to allow you to create this critical mass, to do this important work when it comes to justice and when it comes to equity. Thank you, Dr. Anderson. If I were to mirror back some, some key, um, I think, considerations or key elements of your definition of anti-racist leadership, it would be uh, leveraging one's own positionality. So an inherent understanding of how one's identities, you talked about knowing yourself, shows up in day-to-day -day situations as a leader and you underscored some, some extensions being a leader of color. The second was critically examine and dismantle systems of oppression. And I'll go so far as to say, but correct me if I'm wrong, um, critically examine and dismantle systems of racial oppression. And I wanna pause now and allow Dr. Lewis, if you have anything that you wanna extend, build on, push back against as we kind of work together to think about this definition of anti-racist leadership. I, I definitely appreciate um, the, the terms that Dr. Anderson used to describe what a true anti-racist leader is. And she used terms like uh, being a courageous leader, uh, being resilient. Uh, and, and she talked about how some people can, can talk the talk um, um, some people can can read the, the latest books, you know, on on um, anti-racism. Um, but I, I would say those are the individuals that you kind of have to be leery of, uh, you know, in, in um, I'm from Alabama. So in, in Dr. King's letter to the Birmingham jail, he kind of talked about that. Uh, where he talked about that, that uh, what he called that shallow understanding uh, from from people of goodwill and, and how that's more frustrating than a true absolute misunderstanding of people of ill will. And he goes on to say that lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering, bewildering uh, than outright rejection. And so these individuals that, you know, that are reading the latest books, and I think we saw a mass, um, a mass number of individuals right after the George Floyd murder um, purchasing books, you know, which is good. <laughs> it's a good first step. Um, but now, now what is, what has happened, you know, so I, I definitely appreciate Dr. Anderson's comments. And that, that connect question I had around, um, Dr. Anderson's comments around leading to let love live where hate can reside in spite of some disregard. And, um, if we are leading as anti-racist leaders to let love live, we're pushing to let love live where, um, hate can reside in spite of that disregard from your perspectives, is that different for a leader who identifies as white versus a leader who identifies as a leader of color? Or is um, said another way, um, does it matter uh, depending on your racial identity, how you lead for anti-racism, um, how you consider how to build and examine um, systems of racist 
um, actions and activity within your school systems? I would say I think it's, it's, it's more important for um, a white leader, a white anti-racist leader to get out in the front and lead this work. Um, I will tell you, I identify as a um, black male leader in a predominantly white community. And I've been personally called a bully um, and described as throwing a temper tantrum when I became passionate and, and frustrated in, in, in my response when we're considering our most vulnerable scholars and, and wanting at the time wanting to get them back in school. But when white individuals uh, were also or equally as passionate as and, and frustrated uh, in, in their dialogue, um, nothing was said. They were they were applauded, you know. And so I, I, I think that um, is definitely a strong consideration because I think Dr. Anderson mentioned in her in her remarks is that sometimes leaders of color um, can be silenced or or, or attempted to to silence or or. Uh, not paid attention to. I think she used the terms that, um, yeah, they, they, that sometimes leaders of color will not be paid attention to, you know, if we continue this work. And so I think it's um, much more important for our white, um, some say allies, I like Bettina Love's uh, term, co-conspirators. You know, I think we definitely need co-conspirators um, in, in this work with our white um, anti-racist leaders. I think this dovetails nicely, Dr. Lewis, into our our second prompt, um, which is from your perspective, what are key practices our viewers and listeners can engage in to be anti-racist? I, I think the, the first practice is this notion of really examining self, um, examining self, um, educating yourself. Dr. Anderson did a beautiful job of, of describing what this uh, anti-racist leader is. And we think about the, the, just that term leader and, and, and leadership. Um, one must possess some of those critical skills of being a true leader in, in the truest sense of the word. And I will say, being an anti-racist leader, this is not a time for um, timid leadership. Um, one of my mentors once shared with me just in, in leadership in general, um, and definitely you know, with this anti-racist work, you won't be liked. Um, it requires that, that conscious decision that I'm going to really pursue this work with a goal. And I like the way uh, I think Dr. Kaiser and Dr. Anderson both said, dismantle these systems of oppression. You know, Some people say we wanna disrupt. You know, if, if I disrupt the room, I can put the room back together, but I wanna totally, totally dismantle these systems of, of, of oppression. And in, in, in really examining self and educating yourself, really truly understanding the historical context of um, how we got here, really understanding um, from um, our Native American perspective, from our African American perspective in terms of being dehumanized, uh, truly understanding that foundational work of why um, and how um, America was built with these racist uh, ideologies and these racist, these racist practices. Uh, I would probably couch, couch um, th this question around what I call um, three Ps, which is, is really examining people, policies, and, and, and practices. Um, and in your organization, I'll, I'll speak from a K-12 standpoint, really examining the policies. And so when you think about what are some of those practices, looking at current policies that are in place in your, in your school district or in your organization, looking at how some of those current policies um, may have been implemented, um, maybe with good intent, but has continued to perpetuate the status quo or has continued to um, 
continue to, to, to marginalize certain groups of, of people. Um, looking at what policies need to be in place that will help dismantle and, and uh, yeah, that will help dismantle these, these systems. Um, in our district, we are crafting an, an equity policy that will uh, help us with continuing to, to move forward. Um, look, also looking at practices in your, in your district, um, looking at, uh, again, for example, behavior policies. Uh, there's these, uh, what I call subjective terms that are in probably every K-12 uh, code of student conduct, these terms like um, disobedience, disruptive behavior, uh, defiance, all of those are probably in um, many K-12 code of student conduct um, books, but looking at those from a, from a standpoint of those are subjective terms. You know, what does, because I would guarantee you if you put 10 people in a room and ask them their definition of defiance or their, dis, uh, their definition of disruptive behavior, you will find um, probably 10 different definitions. Look at policies, um, practices, um, the people. Sometimes you may have to remove some people that are continuing to, to perpetuate um, uh, the status quo. You may have to um, have those courageous conversations with those individuals when you see them harming marginalized students. And finally, looking at practices that are in place in, in, in your district, um, looking at your budgets, how are you spending your budgets to um, um, support marginalized students or how are you not spending your budget to support um, marginalized students. And so these, these, these practices definitely, again, requires courageous uh, leadership. Uh, it will require that, and I think now more than ever through this pandemic, we've seen, I'll speak personally in my district, we've seen a continued, continued need to continue to talk about um, this work. Um, some people uh, may not have a true understanding of, of, of this work. And so again, this pandemic has really kind of pull the bandaid off of um, the work that we need to continue to do uh, in our district. I like to tell people this, this, this anti-racist work is, is true legacy work, work that um, will outlive us, you know, work that we wanna, um, you know, when we're, I, I used to say when we're sitting on the porch reading a newspaper, nobody reads the newspaper much anymore. When we have, maybe have our iPad looking at um, a school district or, or an organization and we can say, we did that. You know, that, that, that's the work that um, someone once said, you know, we're, we're, we're planting trees whose shade we'll never be able to sit in. That's the true legacy work. But um, it's, it's tough work, but it's the right work. So with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Dr. Anderson. Anything else you want to build or extend? I wanted to say, um, Dr. Lewis, what you said about um, this idea of not being liked, knowing that what you say is not always going to be popular you know, just reminds me of how important it is to not only have that self-confidence, but to be able to surround yourself with like-minded people who understand the work that you're doing, because that's where you're going to get your power and your energy from sometimes, um, because otherwise it can be draining. There, I, I really liked also what you had to say about the subjectivity that's involved in a lot of our disciplinary practices that really lead to students of color often being um, punished, not given an opportunity to restore themselves more so than other students. Back that comes with trying to change those systems um, because it's 
what people are accustomed to doing, uh, a fear from doing something, uh, doing something different and thinking that it might not work as well. But also, you know, you also deal sometimes with people who think that people deserve a certain type of treatment. And that's, that's, that is really heavy. When you talked about history, that just ties it back to history. And to think about where we have come from as African-American people, as people of color, where we've come from to this point and um, remembering that we are on this journey. And every time that we've uh, made progress on this journey, I'll use your word this time, co-conspirators, there have been co-conspirators along. So really finding a way to find your strength in those who are like-minded and willing to accept not being liked for doing the right work. Thanks so much, Dr. Anderson and Dr. Lewis. I just wanted to add something that I heard from both of you. I mean, reason not to be liked, that's the reason not to be liked. And I think that ties in really importantly with the idea of being a co-conspirator and an accomplice. That means that you're giving something up in order to resist a system that is harmful. To be a co-conspirator, to be an accomplice means that you're ready to get into the work and you're ready to to be unliked. You're ready to get in trouble, to get in good trouble, to 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 not only be disruptive but to dismantle. Um, and I think again, I mean, to really call white colleagues to the table. Uh, when you know that you're positioned in a way where you get a benefit of a doubt that your colleagues, that your black colleagues do not get, acknowledge that publicly and say it out loud and engage in that anti-racist work as well to your to a detriment, right? And then be ready to and prepare to um, bear the consequences of that. Um, so thank you both so much for your comments. I've really, really appreciated the personal stories that you've shared. Um, and I am really looking forward to share this with our audiences. And I, you know, appreciate the privilege of being able to be here and to listen to you. Thanks, Nikki. I want to, again, extend a, a warm uh, and gracious thank you to Dr. Anderson and to Dr. Lewis for enriching us with their, um, their thoughts, their perspectives. Um, their lived experience. Um, I know I've I've got a lot to think about uh, in in response to this conversation, but just really appreciate you both. Thank you. All right. Um, don't forget to stop by our online equity resource library at www.greatlakesequity.org for an array of resources and supports related to anti-racist practice. Some titles you'll find are our our. Uh, educational Experiences of Students with Multiply Marginalized Identities, a Qualitative Research Synthesis of Disability Research, which is a podcast that you can find on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, our newsletter, Shifting from Surveillance and Control in Virtual Learning Environments, Utilizing Principles of Universal Design for Learning and Culturally Sustaining Pedagogy. In this newsletter, we discuss equity issues in discipline and virtual learning and how to shift away from discipline toward engaging students and educational and instructional practices that will engage students rather than punish them. And then lastly, an intersectional approach to building inclusive schools. This is a recording of a virtual roundtable hosted by Dr. Federico Weitaler, a scholar and author of the recently published book, Excluded by Choice, Urban Students with Disabilities in the Education Marketplace. And lastly, don't forget to follow us. We are on Twitter and Facebook. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Great Lakes EAC. 
uh, hashtag map, map equity. Um, please, if you're listening and for our listeners, share what you learned here today and don't forget to tag us and uh, hashtag. Um, and then also like us on Facebook. Again, um, you can find us at Great Lakes Equity Center slash Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. Give us a like and a follow in order to stay up to date on our publications and events. This resource was brought to you by the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. To find out about other Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center resources, visit our website at www.greatlakesequity.org. To subscribe to our publications, click on the subscribe to our publications link located on the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center website. The Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center, a project of the Great Lakes Equity Center, is funded by the United States Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout our 13-state region. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. This product and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or in any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or via any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. Finally, the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center would like to thank the Indiana University School of Education Indianapolis at IUPY, as well as Executive Director Dr. Catherine Quintorius, Director of Operations Dr. Sina Skelton, and Associate Director Dr. Tiffany Kaiser for their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support the region.